So beginning in John chapter 11, verse 55, and up to John chapter 12, verse 26, hear the word of the Lord. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir... We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. It seems like in just about any human culture, We are good at VIP arrivals. We make a big deal when somebody important 
uh, in some area of our society shows up. I remember seeing a couple presidents arrive once when I was uh, a boy, watching President Nixon uh, drive down Market Street in Warren, Ohio, and the streets were lined to see President Nixon in his limousine with a glass, bulletproof glass bubble, waving awkwardly to the crowds. More impressive was when I saw President Reagan arrive uh, in uh, Marine One to dedicate a building at the National Security Administration outside of Baltimore. He was there with other VIPs as well to give a little speech. But you know the, the experience, maybe you watch things like the Oscars or the, the Academy Awards and there's the, the red carpet arrival of all these, these uh, artists or you've gone to a football game and uh, when the, the visiting team comes out, there's uh, uh, some shuffling and some booing perhaps, but then the home team comes out and there are fireworks and the band plays and there's streamers and so on. We love to welcome VIPs. Now, Jesus, up to this point, he operated both in the other three Gospels and in this Gospel in what looked like something of a contradictory manner. He didn't arrive like a VIP, but sometimes he would gather vast crowds and he would do things that that drew attention to himself. But then almost as soon as he would do that, he would slip away from the crowds and he would even tell people, don't say anything to anyone. But that changes very markedly in this text where he finally makes something like a VIP arrival. But before he does that, there's a private dinner that becomes not so private. And at that private dinner, there is a gesture there that explains somewhat cryptically what is about to happen after Jesus makes his VIP arrival. Now, last week, you remember, we met three siblings. We met Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Lazarus had the problem of having died and been buried. And then four days later, Jesus came and Jesus shocked everybody by raising him from the dead as a sign to point to himself as the one who is the resurrection and the dead. But Jesus then left because they were seeking his life, because they said, this is it. It was bad enough that he he healed a blind man. But now raising the dead, that is going beyond the pale. We cannot tolerate this anymore. And so the leaders decided that was it. And one of them, the high priest, prophesied, saying it's better for one man to die and not the whole nation perish. And that's how we ended. And then Jesus, once again, what did He do? He slipped off. But now He's coming back. He comes back to Bethany where He had raised Lazarus from the dead. And... He's sitting at the table, and all three of them are there. And uh, this is the time of the Passover. Now, in John, we have encountered three Passovers. So that means that we're dealing with somewhat over two years of public ministry. And this is the third and final Passover. And this is an explosive time. Look at verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. If they had had contact with a dead body, they needed to be purified for a week. 
So if they had had somebody die in their family or friends, they had a week. So they came early, a week early, and Jerusalem was beginning to fill up. Now, Jerusalem was about a mile square, so it wasn't a big place. And as far as we can tell, it had a fixed population of about 25,000 in a mile square. But during the Passover, as many as 150,000 would show up. So this is like our beach during the winter, but much more so. And so the crowds were teeming in Jerusalem. And they were wondering if Jesus would show up. And so they were talking aloud. Do you think He'll show up? And the reason they were asking that is because they knew, look at verse 57, they knew and they were under strict orders. The chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where He was, He should let them know so that they might arrest Him. Now, Jesus comes out of wherever He was uh, in obscurity, and He goes to Bethany once again. Lazarus was there. Martha was there. Characteristically, what we know of Martha, she was serving. Uh, Mary was also there. And then Mary did something quite surprising and apparently wasteful, very extravagant. She took a pound... Uh, it was somewhat less than a pound, but it was, it was similar to a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. Now, this is an incident that shows up in all four of the Gospels, and the scholars are still working on trying to figure out if it's all the same incident or if this happened more than one time with different women doing this. And it's very difficult to figure out because the details in some ways are very similar. In other ways, the details are different. So did it happen more than once or did it happen just this once? And it's told in different ways in the different Gospels. But she took this and she anointed his feet, which of course is a a show of great humility because not even the slaves had to deal with their master's feet. So it was, it was a very lowly thing to do, to be touching someone else's feet. Keep that in mind, because soon Jesus Himself is going to be touching other people's feet. But a very lowly thing to do. And also what she do was rather scandalous, because women did not have their hair uncovered in public. Now she was in a house, but it was public enough, because you see that people were coming and going here. And she let her hair down... And then she used her hair as a towel to wipe Jesus' feet. This was, this was quite shocking behavior, but the, the level of her devotion was, was exceedingly extravagant because this could have been something like an heirloom that had been passed down or perhaps part of her, her dowry. This was an exceedingly expensive item that she just poured out all at once on Jesus' feet. And the offense of this was picked up by those who were observing. In the other Gospels, it said, some said this. Here it hones in on Judas Iscariot. And Judas Iscariot, who's identified as one of his disciples, verse 4, he who was about to betray him, he asked a question that all of us maybe would have been thinking if we had been there. Because this looked so, so wasteful. He said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Good question. 
300 denarii, he just did a, he, he calculated this in his mind and just estimated that this was worth a year's wages for a working man. So why this year's wages for a working man just poured out like that when there's so many poor people around? And we might wonder. And we've asked our question, ourselves that sort of question, haven't we? When we have seen in our society great displays of wealth, and then we look down the street and we see great crushing poverty as well, and we say, why wasn't this used instead of for this parade or something like that? Why wasn't it used to help feed people? So we can understand the nature of the question. But then we have a curious explanation by the author, by the Apostle John. He said, Judas really didn't care about the poor. And he says something about Judas that is striking. He says he was actually a thief. And he was the treasurer. Now, that's not the first time that that's happened. And maybe he wasn't a thief before he became the treasurer. Sometimes people become thieves when they have access to funds and not much supervision. And oftentimes, it's hard to detect them until after the fact. And I'm guessing that's what happened here. As the, the other disciples were, were talking about things after the fact, and they were comparing notes, and wait, didn't we send Judas to go pick up... Uh, 10 pounds of this, and he came back with only five and said he didn't have enough money. Do you remember that? And they may have been putting two and two together, which is what often happens. And they said he was a thief. Now, there's something very frightening about this statement. Not that he was a thief, but that this is the only negative thing said about Judas, except for the fact that after the fact, they knew that he was the one that betrayed Jesus. They knew that only after the fact. So the frightening thing about that is, he looked like everyone else. He looked like the rest of the disciples. He preached like the rest of the disciples. Apparently he healed like the rest of the disciples and and cast out demons like the rest of the, the disciples. And that's frightening. Because he was a false disciple all the way along, but he wasn't detected. And they only detected him after the fact. But Jesus defended Mary on two counts. And both of these have an ominous ring to them. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of of my burial. That statement is a little bit hard to figure out because she didn't keep it. She she poured it out. And so it may be something in retrospect saying, leave her alone so that she might be keeping it in this moment for the day of my burial. But however you want to to, to interpret this, keep it, or maybe it's keep the ceremony for the day of my burial. She's already poured out the, the ointment. However it might be, Jesus mentions His burial all of a sudden. And that introduces a, an ominous tone to this conversation. Now, we don't know how much Mary understood about what she was doing, but Jesus interpreted her actions as anointing for burial, which is what they did in those days. And then He says this, also on, ominous, verse 8, For the poor you always have with you, 
but you do not always have me. So Mary is anointing me for my burial, and you will not always have the opportunity to serve me. Two ominous statements. And now we move on in verse 9, and we find out that a large crowd of the Jews, probably from Jerusalem, found out that Jesus was in Bethany. And not long before this, what had Jesus done? He had raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, let me ask you. If you knew that you could talk with somebody who was dead for four days and had come back to life, would you be interested in asking a few questions? I'm sure all of us would be fascinating. What was it like? Where were you? Were you conscious? Were you suffering? Were you in peace? Were you in glory? What, what was your situation? Because we're all looking for some information about after the grave. And it says that they were looking for Him. Not only to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus as well. But the chief priests were concerned about this. Verse 10, the chief priests made plans to put Jesus to death. I'm sorry, to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And you can imagine that this was the most powerful of the signs, raising someone from the dead. Having seen this sign, not being able to to discount this sign, many were going and believing in Jesus. And so the chief priest said, we have to kill Lazarus as well. Now I I want you to notice something here. There's a dynamic going on here. In the end of the last chapter, what had they decided? It was better for what? One man to die and not the whole nation perish. But the first one's the hardest, isn't it? The first lie you tell is the one that's the hardest to tell. But after that, the lies start flowing more easily. The first murder is the hardest one to commit. The first betrayal, the first, the first theft is the hardest one. But then you can get accustomed, and that's the problem with sin, is it leads to sin. And we see that here. You see, they had said, okay, uh, this, this is not right, the procedure's not right, we recognize that, but, but we're going to cut some corners here, and it's good, it's better for one man to die and not the whole nation perish. But now they're up to what? Two. And that's how it works. That's how the slippery slope starts. And we see that once they had turned that corner and they were willing to sacrifice an innocent man for their own benefit, then it became much easier to sacrifice two innocent men for their own benefit. Now we go to what is a familiar passage, often read the week before Easter, so-called triumphal entry. And we already met a large crowd in verse 9, and now we have... Another large crowd, and the large crowds are not necessarily the same. The large crowd that we met in verse 9 are those who had heard, those from Jerusalem, who had heard about this sign and they were coming to Bethany to see Jesus and Lazarus. And now we have another large crowd that had come to the feast. And they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So these were pilgrims as well, probably many from Galilee where Jesus had done much of His ministry. And so they probably had had some encounter with Jesus and His teaching and His work. 
And they, they heard that He was coming into Jerusalem. So Jesus was traveling the two miles from Bethany up to Jerusalem. And the, the pilgrims were pouring in as well, and probably some pouring out from the city as well, to meet Jesus. And then they did something. We call it Palm Sunday, but only because of what John tells us. In the other Gospels, it doesn't mention palm branches, but here it says they took branches of the palm trees and they went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, they took these palm branches. Palm branches had become significant. They were used in another feast. They weren't prescribed for the feast of uh, the Passover. However, they were used to using palm branches on festive occasions, and they had used palm branches to greet Judas Maccabee. Now, we learned about Judas Maccabee. Maccabee means hammer, and he was the liberator of the Jews in the middle of the 160s, and he liberated the Jews from the oppressors, the Greek oppressors. And when Judas the hammer came into town, uh, let's see, that was in about 140 B.C., they welcomed him. He drove out the Syrians there who were representing the Greeks. He drove them out and they represented the hammer, or they, they welcomed the hammer with what? Palm branches. And they also used palm branches when they dedicated the temple because the temple had been profaned by, uh, by Antioch, Antiochus Epiphanes and uh, Antiochus IV, and Judas Maccabeus had, had driven them out and recung or rededicated the temple, and so they used palm branches. And this was not too far in their history. And so they remembered, what do you do when a conqueror comes into town? What do you do when somebody comes into town to throw off the oppressors? You welcome that person with palm branches. And then they quoted and sang Psalm 118.25. This Hosanna which means save, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they improvised and they added themselves, even the king of Israel. So they were, they were taking this song that they sang as they were going up to Jerusalem and they were applying it to Jesus and they were adding some, making it very specific that they were treating Jesus as what? As a king. As a king. And then Jesus did something which partially partially fulfilled their expectations. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey. Now, in the other Gospels, it tells us how He found it. Here it says, He found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your what? King is coming, verse 15, Your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, Jesus partially fulfills their expectation, But then he does something which is something like a misdirection as well. They're looking for another Judas hammer man. They're looking for somebody to throw off the Romans like Judas had thrown off the Greeks. And Jesus rides into town on what? A donkey. Now, a donkey was not an unworthy beast for a king. Donkeys and others would use, uh, other royals and important people would use Donkeys. But they used donkeys not in time of war, but in time of peace. And so it wasn't an unworthy animal for a king, but it was an inappropriate animal for wartime. 
when you're under the oppression of the Romans and you're expecting somebody, a king, a liberator to come in and drive out the Romans, let's bring a war horse, folks. Not a donkey. So you see, he's, he's, he's giving them something of a double message here. On the one hand, he's, he's fanning for the first time this public recognition of himself as the king, the coming king. But he's saying, I'm coming in peace. I'm not coming to make war. Now, it says that his disciples didn't get all of that. We can't blame them for not getting all of that. And when he was glorified, then they understood, verse 16, that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd, once again, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness because they had seen it. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard he had done this sign, so they're continuing to bear witness. And the Pharisees have had it again. Verse 19, The Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now this is classic Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, we, we have these statements where the speakers are saying much more than they know. They're stating something that makes sense in their context, but John loves to include these statements, and he knows, and we the readers know, that there's much more meaning to them. And we see that in both of their statements here. Their statement is basically this. It says, you are doing nothing beneficial. That's what they're saying to each other. And what they mean by that is, Everything you're doing to try to stop Jesus, it's not working. But on another level, they're saying to each other, you're doing nothing good. You're doing nothing beneficial. And John says, you said it. You're the ones who said it. You just condemned yourselves that what you're doing is not good. What you're doing is not beneficial in trying to stop Jesus. And then the next statement, they say, with some hyperbole, look, the world has gone after Him. Now what they mean there is, Many Jews. It looked like the, the whole city was going after him. And they, they exaggerate and they say, the world has gone after him. But it's on cue that the world shows up right after they say that. They didn't know how bad it was and how bad it was going to get. They were exaggerating in their own minds. But guess who shows up in the next verse? The world shows up. So they say, the world has gone after him. And then we have a knock on the door. Hi, I'm the world. We're here. And watch what they do. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These are Greeks. Apparently they were worshipers of the true God, but they were not Jews. So who were they? They were the world. They were the nations. And they were showing up. And they found... Philip, and Philip found Andrew, and these two are, are paired together often in the Gospel of John, and Philip didn't know what to do, he went and told Andrew, both of these, by the way, had Greek names, which was not uncommon, we don't know if that's why they sought out Philip and Philip Andrew, we don't know, if they, they thought there might be some affinity there, but for whatever reason, those two go and they tell Jesus. And by the way, the only thing Andrew does in the Gospel of John is take people to Jesus. 
He does it three times. That's all he does. And that's sufficient. And here he's doing it again. He's saying, Jesus, there's some Greeks here who want to see you. And Jesus answered. Buckle your seatbelts, folks. He's about to shock us. And Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you've been following along in the Gospel of John, you heard back in John 2, 4, and you heard back in John seven thirty, and you heard back in John eight twenty. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And now Jesus announces, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Everything's falling together, isn't it? The crowds are there. The Jews are there. The Greeks are there. He's riding in as a king. And so the expectations are high. Surely now, surely now, God is going to liberate His people from those hated Romans. We're expecting another Judas Maccabee. And then Jesus tells a parable that doesn't seem to fit. In verse 24, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it it bears much fruit. That seems like the wrong time to say that, doesn't it? Marching into Jerusalem, announcing that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and then in the next sentence to say, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it comes up again and it bears much fruit. And I'm sure they were quite surprised by this statement. But they figured out eventually what we can now see from this distance. How was Jesus going to be glorified? We have had hints of this all through the Gospel. He says, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be lifted above the earth. I'm going to be glorified by being lifted up. And now we're able better to put two and two together and realize that what he was talking about was being physically lifted up from the earth on a Roman cross to die. That's how Jesus would be glorified. Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be lifted up. And die. And he explains that unless I die, I remain alone. But if I die, I bear much fruit. But not only that, and here he's ramping up our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he says, that's how it works for me. And so if you want to be my follower, that's how it works for you as well. 
Verse 25. Whoever loses his, I'm sorry, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What's he saying? He's saying to us that if if we want to follow him, we need to take the path that he took. If we want to be where he is, we need to be where he is in being glorified by giving up his life. And he says, if you, if you love your life and try to hold on to your life and say, this is mine, this is for me, then you will lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of Christ and His kingdom, you have it. How did Jesus have His life? By holding on to it? On the contrary, He laid it down for His people. And he says, this is the path to life, folks. The path to life is not self-preservation. The path to life is self-giving. The path to life is to lose your life. As contradictory as that may sound, but we see it in the case of Jesus. This is the principle. And He says, this is how it will work for us as well. So this is what it means to be a disciple. And we have seen throughout the Gospel of John that there have been many would-be disciples until Jesus says something they don't like, and then some of them actually want to stone Him. There were some temporary disciples, there were some false disciples, and there was one disciple who became a betrayer and a thief. And now Jesus is explaining, this is what a disciple looks like. Where I go, the disciple goes. The path that I take to life through death is the path of discipleship as well. Now, it looks like Jesus ignored the Greeks' request, doesn't it? The delegation of the Greeks come, uh, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. They go and they tell Jesus. And Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It looks like He ignored their request, but He did not ignore their request. He answered their request. He's saying, Do you want to see Me? Do the nations want to see Me? Well, they will see Me soon because I will be lifted up for all to see. I will be lifted up on the cross. I will be lifted up in the resurrection. I will be lifted up to the right hand of God. If they want to see Me, let them look because I am going to be more visible than I have ever been before. They answered the request. And the, the leaders got it almost right when they said, the world has gone after Him. And that's still looking that way. Because to this day, many Jews are going after Jesus. And many non-Jews, the nations, are going after Jesus. But it's not quite true yet that everyone has gone after Him. And if you have not yet gone after Him... If you're still alive, there's still time. And so, this is the invitation. He's been made more visible than ever. He's been lifted up on the cross. He's been lifted up in the resurrection. He's been lifted up to the right hand of God. So, see Him. 
look upon Him, believe in Him, and live eternally. Let's pray. Our God, we see Jesus in the pages of Your Word once again lifted up on the cross, glorified, surprisingly on a Roman cross, so that all of us who want to live might look and live. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would not try to preserve our lives by hanging on to it and, and serving ourselves, but that we would follow Jesus by believing in Him who gave His life for us and was therefore lifted up. That we would seek that kind of glory because it says that the one who serves Jesus, that God, You will honor Him. And we pray, O oh God, that You would make us believers indeed and that we would go the path that Jesus went so that we might receive that honor from You and not simply the petty self-honor that we can muster in this world. Lord, make us believers and make us believers indeed. Make us disciples of Jesus, taking the path that He took, being lifted up to live. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.